I'm Kay Firth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello, Kay. It's great to see you. Likewise. What have you been doing, Miriam, since we last met? Well, it's been really interesting in good times. On a personal note, I got to celebrate my daughter's bat mitzvah in Israel, and that was such a gift. My mother joined us and it was a truly impactful trip and one we will always treasure. And in the AI space, it's just been so exciting and interesting, such a poignant and profound moment. And we've had a series of open discussion meetings for NIAC. And next few days, we'll have our public meeting, which if people aren't able to catch it, we will be posting online, getting the group back together in full, but it will be all virtual for this meeting. We are starting to do more frequent meetings. And so we are doing them virtually so that we can have more conversations, move more quickly and provide more opportunity for people to hear both what the NIAC members are thinking about and working on, as well as inviting more members of the public to join us to participate. So I'm very excited about that. And where do we find you and what have you been up to, Kay? Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to say I love the way that you managed to balance being a fabulous mom and also doing such amazing work in Responsible AI. We're very lucky to have you, and I'm sure your daughters are too. So where do you find me? You find me in Florence. I'm going to speak tomorrow at the Monash Data Dialogues. And last week I was in Aix-en-Provence at Recontre Economique, which is a three-day event that the French government hosts where, you know, you were talking about the need to talk to the general public more. The general public is invited to all of the three days of sessions talking about the things that are most important around the economy. And of course, you know, as well as economists, they've now branched out and are inviting people like us to talk about artificial intelligence So it was a really rewarding and fascinating three days. Well, it sounds really interesting. Thank you for giving us a little glimpse into your important, interesting conversations. And thank you for your generous words as well. That means a lot. And I'm very excited today for the conversation we're going to have on another conversation that we were able to hear in part, but for those who missed it, we will have the links online. And that is to the AI for Good Global Summit that was recently hosted in Geneva by our guests, Philip Hacker and Sarah Hammer. They both have very extensive backgrounds in industry, academia, and working with governments across the globe, both in an ethics perspective, as well as in Sarah's case, in the financial services industry. And I'm really excited for us to have the conversation about the conference that I was privileged to participate in and learn more about the really interesting, important talks that they had about not just asking the questions and identifying some of the risks that came up at the conference and that they're thinking about in their papers and other work, um, but also starting to offer some important, thoughtful solutions. So let's dive in. Welcome to this week's episode of In AI We Trust. Today we are joined by two guests, Dr. Philip Hacker and Sarah Hammer, who are here to discuss a recent event that they put on the Geneva Conference and their important respective work in responsible AI. Philip is the Chair for Law and Ethics of the Digital Society at the European University Viadrina in Frankfurt. He serves jointly at the Faculty of Law 
and at the European New School of Digital Studies. He has also been a fellow in multiple prestigious institutions, the Weizenbaum Institute, the Postdoc Fellowship at Humboldt University, and several others. And prior to that, he was a Max Weber Fellow at the European University Institute and several other prestigious institutions. His current work focuses on the regulation of digital technologies with a particular focus on AI and often advises national and EU institutions in such matters. Sarah Hammer is the executive director at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and leads the Wharton Cipher Accelerator, which supports leading global businesses that are leveraging financial technology. She's also an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School and affiliated scholar at the Penn Program on Regulation. Previously, she's had several prominent positions across Wharton and is a board member at the International Telecommunications Union at the United Nations, advisor at the World Economic Forum, Dubai International Finance Center, Digital Dollar Project for Central Bank Digital Currency, and several other affiliations. She was previously acting secretary of the Department of Banking and Securities for Pennsylvania and Prior to that, Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for Financial Institutions and Director of the Office of Financial Institutions Policy at the U.S. Department of Treasury. She has had numerous leadership positions in the financial services world as well and general management, portfolio management. She has served in senior positions at the Vanguard Group, PIMCO, J.P. Morgan Chase, BlackRock, and several others. So you are able to see here we have two esteemed experts both in the research and industry fields and we are so pleased to have you on with us today thank you for joining us thank you so much Miriam thank you for that generous introduction it's really an honor and a pleasure to be here and great to be here with Professor Hacker wonderful to see you all again after our time together in Geneva I'm really happy to be here too thanks so much Miriam and Kay for having us over well, I'm so excited you mentioned the conference, Sarah, because I want to just start there. We have so many questions for you, but I've been wanting a debrief on the conference. I had the honor of joining you. Unfortunately, my participation was virtual this year at the AI for Good Global Summit in Geneva. I've been wanting to hear how the rest of the summit went. You had really interesting speakers and talks and papers affiliated. Can you tell our listeners what was the purpose of the summit? What inspired you to put this together? What were you hoping to end the conference with? And, and did it happen? Well, I'll start us off, Miriam, and then I know that Philip will add to our discussion greatly on this topic, but I'll just give a bit of context. I've had the honor and privilege of serving on the oversight committee called the IMAC at the International Telecommunications Union since 2018. And the ITU is the UN Specialized Agency for Connectivity. So in addition to housing AI for good, it's also very focused on broadband, satellite, radio, even maritime communications. And AI for good is a very important effort of the agency and has been held every year going back several years. But during the pandemic, there was an interruption. They were unable to be in person. So this year's AI for Good Summit was a great reunion for a lot of folks from around the world to discuss important topics around AI, and the Secretary General of the United Nations was able to join the event virtually as well. Um, we were really honored to have your remarks there, Miriam, and really excited to engage you going forward. And ITU Secretary General uh, Doreen Bogdan-Martin was very actively engaged in the summit as well. So 
Philip really led the effort. I'll let him talk more about that to develop two days of workshops on generative AI, um, legal, economic, engineering considerations uh, with a strong focus on regulation going forward. And then the summit took place the later part of two weeks ago. And there were great discussions on many topics as AI relates to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And I'll add that one uh, really cool highlight of this year's AI for Good Summit was robotics and the role that they can play in AI for Good and supporting sustainable development around the world. Um, there were robots all over the event. It was a beautiful, well-done event and a great honor to be there. Yeah, thanks for that lead-in summary, Sarah. And I just want to add maybe one or two wrinkles concerning our own workshop, which we put together actually with the help of a lot of actors, also the help of the Dieter Schwartz Foundation, uh, which generously funded the conference. And so the idea was that basically when you look at the world right now, I think people both within and outside of the AI bubble would agree that AI and generative AI more particularly is certainly one of the top notch matters, challenges, and opportunities that our world is facing. But to make this right, to make it happen in such a way that most people, if not almost everyone, benefits from it, including those who are you know, marginalized or underserved, uh, clearly we need a dialogue that extends beyond the normal disciplinary borders. And that's why we came up with this idea of bringing together really the leading academics the top-notch people from policymaking and industry leaders for a transatlantic conversation, in fact, a global conversation on those matters. And uh, we were so honored to see so many of really the best people working in the field come together and follow our invitation from engineering, machine learning, law, and ethics. And the topics we had really stretched the whole bandwidth of what you can expect in, in developments in generative AI, both on the risk and the opportunity side. We talked a lot about uh, biases and equality, about work and the future of work, about healthcare, but also about content moderation. And not to forget, for example, developments in the global South in countries such as Brazil, where we have exciting developments on this as well. It's not only happening in the US and in the EU, we shouldn't forget that. Thank you. Thank you for that summary. And, and I totally agree with you, both in my work when I was at the World Economic Forum and now at the Center for Trustworthy Technology, that bringing together all the people who have a voice and should have a voice is so important in the conversations we need to have going forward. So let us dig into the summit a bit more. You each gave talks and participated in workshops over the course of the conference. We wanted to ask each of you in turn about your talks and the work that you've been doing in the space. So let me go to you, Philip, first. You provided a talk on trustworthy generative AI, which was based on published and working papers, which include regulating ChatGPT and other large generative models, the European AI liability directives, and teaching fairness to artificial intelligence existing and novel strategies against algorithmic discrimination under EU law. Can you tell us about the talk, the analytical framework that you described in the talk, and how you envisage we can achieve trustworthiness in generative AI? Yeah, that's a tough question, I guess. Uh, I cannot answer that in two minutes, but I'll try my best. So the talk had a dual function. It was conceived 
on the one hand as the introductory remarks for our own workshop, but I was honored then to be asked together with Sarah to come on stage at the Global Summit, the big event also, where I reiterated kind of in a condensed form some of those thoughts. And the main idea I had was about the best way in which we can link academia and, and research with policymaking and policy advice. Because one of the big problems that I see at the moment, and I'm advising in various roles, a diverse range of institutions, both nationally and internationally, is that there is a lot of distraction happening with people talking about you know existential risks and uh, killer robots, while at the same time, there's harms that we need to address that are more concrete, and there's also opportunities to be reaped and uh, not to be overlooked. And so I thought that in the legal space, oftentimes there's a focus on the risks because that's what lawyers do, you know? So we're there to regulate for risks. You know, if there's some, everything is fine. You don't need the lawyers, right? Well, not really. Whilst on the other end of the aisle in the computer science departments and the engineering departments, there's obviously much more focus on the opportunities because that's what they're building for. And so bringing those two together and finding a common middle ground, this was really about what I thought to try to find and disentangle on this talk. And the way I proposed to do this was to kind of systematize the different risks and opportunities along several dimensions. So I'm calling out two here, and this is the time horizon on the one hand. So differentiating between short, medium, and long-term challenges or consequences. And on the other axis, as it were, looking at the level of abstraction of the question. So is it a micro issue? Is it a meso issue or is it a macro question? So just two examples to, to highlight what this means. If we look at the intersection of short-term and micro perspectives, probably one of the most urgent things to look at is the rules and tools for content moderation, I believe, such that we get rid of toxic content coming out of generative AI. Whilst if we look at the macro questions and issues and long-term consequences, that's where the discourse on existential risks is rightly located. And that's where even more pressingly, I think, we need to ask ourselves what the kind of world of work it is that we want to live in, how jobs are being augmented, substituted, replaced, what this does to our tax base and to the future of those people who are actually in those jobs and urgently need help for upskilling, um, but that can also leverage AI to become much more proficient and much more efficient in what they're doing. And um, maybe maybe also a final thought on on what it needs to you know to accomplish trustworthy generative AI. Well, first of all, of course, we need many more of these workshops, <laughs> and so that's why we're um, just joking a little bit. But actually, you know, we have just um, found it because we've had such strong momentum at the conference, which such positive feedback really from policymakers, from people at the UN, from so many angles that we decided to team up Sarah and I. We're founding a consortium, an international expert consortium on the regulation, computer science, and economics of AI. It's going to be called Rex AI it's for regulation, economics, and computer science of AI. And we would like to host more of these conferences and talks on both sides of the Atlantic and hope to follow up with you on this shortly. What we need in terms of content and not institutional frameworks, I think, is robust guardrails for the most important risks that we're seeing. Uh, such as privacy and non-discrimination, transparency, and toxic output. But at the same time, 
making sure that we harvest the opportunities to actually earn the trust of persons when they do see that things are working, that it does help them, that it does and can benefit underserved communities when we look at medical AI, that it can help persons that are you know, underprivileged in educational settings when this actually generative AI can make much of a difference. So I think we need to look at both of these angles, having robust guardrails in place with the kind of regulation that we need, plus uh, making sure that we do implement the right structures to actually get those uh, opportunities on the ground and get it to the people who deserve them. If you wouldn't mind, I'd, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about that. We're going to ask you more about the regulations and the guardrails, but before we do, we'd love to hear more about what you think this would look like. What are the opportunities? How would we cultivate them? Philip, I know you've written and thought a lot about this as well as your work at the conference. And Sarah, I know you've seen this in practice in, in the financial space. So before we get into the risks and, and how to mitigate some of those, we'd love to hear more of your thoughts on what those opportunities would look like if we do this properly and, and what would some of those steps be to make sure that we do cultivate it appropriately. Well, I'll just add, Philip, I don't know if you want to take the question, but I want to add one thing to what Philip mentioned about our expert consortium, uh, which we launched out of Geneva. Not only is it interdisciplinary, including attorneys and economists and computer science experts, but also truly global. We had such an incredible group of experts join us for these very substantive workshops in Geneva. And they came from not only Europe and people who are very influential and actively engaged in the regulation that's being formed right now in the European Union, as well as from Asia, North America, South America, as Philip mentioned. And we are extending our reach to places like Africa, for example, and elsewhere in Asia. So I'm really excited about that group. And Miriam, when you ask about you know what needs to be done from here, I think Philip really hit the nail on the head, which is that we need to have more conversations like this and they need to move the ball forward quickly. And the reality is that the ball is moving forward quickly um, and conversations are happening, but we need to be at least aligned with the ball and possibly ahead of it. You know, certainly generative AI is not waiting for us to regulate in order to move forward. It's already actively in practice. And the EU AI Act, as we all know, is also moving forward and in technical discussions very intensively at this time. So we are really grateful that we have regulators and policymakers who are involved directly with our consortium who will be influential on that. And, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll let Philip answer the rest of the question, but I will say substantively on some of these issues around privacy, around model transparency, around fairness, I think those are difficult issues and sometimes there's no perfect answer. And I come from the financial sector and financial regulation and we um, have many issues in um, non-AI regulation that are akin to what's happening in AI around privacy. What, how do you balance privacy against the needs of public policy or the needs of government, for example? What is the different cultural construction around privacy, for example? What is fairness? Can we use generative AI to expand credit provisioning, for example? Versus if we use generative AI, is the result going to be that we have disparity? So I guess this is a long way of saying, I think there's no perfect answer a lot of the time, but for us as policymakers, I do think it's positive that the result I saw of many of our conversations and the convening you know, that Philip really led is moving forward at a very high level on a principled-based approach to some of these issues. And on certain legal issues, 
Um, we need to be more prescriptive. There are certainly areas of AI where there's very high risk, but on other issues, we try to come to a high level principle-based answer that we think there's agreement on. And I think Geneva was a great place to do that because it's where, you know, really the center of international law and where we talk about use Kogan's and comedy, for example. So I'll stop there and I'll toss the ball to Philip. Yeah, just real quickly. Uh, thanks. It's a brilliant question. And I just like to mention three things, perhaps. First, uh, we got to acknowledge, as Sarah mentioned, you know, that there are trade-offs all along the road. And these trade-offs need to be managed well, both on the technical and on the regulatory slash societal level. And oftentimes, since there are no easy questions, those are hard decisions, hard normative choices that lurk behind questions such as, do we want more you know, environmental protection or more privacy, for example? Sometimes there might be trade-offs, and we might talk more about this. Do we want more transparency or more efficiency? There might be trade-offs between that. Um, second point is really about the institutional framework. I, I think we need to ensure that we have these spaces for innovation and testing. And I'm not only talking about sandboxes where companies like SMEs or startups, for example, can test things safely. And that is something we've seen in financial innovation as well. And that is being envisaged in the EUAI Act. But we also need to ensure that compliance costs are structured in such ways that they can be borne by companies, both large and small, because otherwise we risk basically having AI and generative AI develop basically by large big tech companies. And they're doing a great job at it, but it's good to always have, you know, a regulatory framework that also spurs healthy competition and enables smaller startups from everywhere around the world to join the scene and bring in their ideas without being crushed by um, heavy compliance duties. And the, the third thing perhaps that I want to mention is really maybe sometimes we have to jump into the cold water and really try something out in a measured way and then get feedback on it, audit the model, measure the experience and have people actually have access to it and experiment with it. There is no free lunch and there is no risk-free environment, but not engaging in, not implementing AI certainly has risks. And just like implementing AI has risks. And if you do it well in a, in a safe environment, and for example, roll out policies in schools where there's just too few teachers and you know have them getting help with AI-based assistance and see how this is going and where this is going and where the problems are and where the, where the pros are, that's, I think, something we urgently need to do and then move forward with the lessons learned and try to make sure that this really benefits those in need. Thank you, Philip and Sarah, for the very full answer. You mentioned, Philip, sustainability. And obviously, you mentioned it in a different context, but I want to pick up that word because you recently published an article, Sustainable AI Regulation, that suggests that AI regulation needs to shift from trustworthiness to sustainability. So can you tell us why you think this is a needed shift and how do you envisage that regulation would be formulated? Yeah, thank you. Again, a really interesting question. So in fact, yes, I did publish this article. I presented it at the Privacy Law Scholars Conference in the US just one month ago and got really great feedback on it with lots of things to think about. My main motivation is to broaden the horizon around the debate uh, surrounding AI, particularly in the policy space, because we hear a lot and have a lot of ethics guidelines concerning trustworthy AI. And it's not that I want to scrap those, but rather you know, enlarge the spread, not substitute it, but complement it with a vision on um, environmental sustainability. And why that? I mean, I think we don't really have to talk about the climate crisis and emergency we're facing at the moment. 
I'm sitting in, you know, 33 plus apartments uh, right now in Berlin and across the world. It's heating up. We have the U.S. has just experienced a wave of destruction in all different aspects of the country. And uh, we have to act urgently, I think, and rapidly in order to turn the tide on climate change. And all of the, I think, industry parts, and particularly those that are so innovative, such as AI, have to kind of chime in and, and try to do something about it. And AI is particularly well suited because it can offer many solutions to sustainability questions. But at the same time, it is quite ambivalent because it consumes a lot of energy to train and deploy these models. And not only energy, but also water. So recently, a study from the University of California found that a medium-long conversation with ChatGPT with about 20 to 50 questions consumes about 500 milliliters of water. You know, so um, with more than 100 million active users, you can easily imagine what that entails in terms of one of the most scarce resources that we have on the planet. So I think this is at the moment a blind spot in regulation, and we have to really move urgently to deploy the tools that are necessary. And I'm just going to mention three of them that I propose in my paper. The first one is transparency, greater transparency by um, machine learners about the environmental costs of their models. And this is something we can already see at many of the largest conferences, the best machine learning conferences that are requiring submissions now to bring in a carbon footprint, as it were, not only kind of how the model performs. Uh, the second one would be sustainability impact assessments. I would like to see machine learners engage more thoroughly with alternative models that could have a lesser impact on a lesser carbon footprint, for example, or lesser water consumption if they are sort of in the same performance range. And the third point is that for some areas, we might actually have to think about consumption caps. If I see, for example, some AI being deployed for online beauty contests or other things that are not of, say, immediate societal need, I would say that, you know, for these things, we might have to implement something along the lines of some kind of exchange, market exchange uh, that already exists, of course, in some areas. Uh, we can trade uh, certificates such as CO2 certificates and something along these lines could be envisioned for certain um, AI worlds as well. Philip, I'm so grateful for your sharing this work, for providing this work and giving us a glimpse into it. It's something Kay and I have been talking about for so long and have been waiting for the ball to drop, at least in the echo chambers, <laughs> at least for people to be talking about it more. Uh, as the enthusiasm escalates, the awareness of the environmental costs has really been lagging. And, and, and so it's really important that works like yours are read by all of us, are talked about by all of us. And you not only talk about it, you offer some proposed solutions that are really thoughtful. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for the work you're doing. And Sarah, I'm so excited to talk to you about your thoughts in the financial space, because it's so unusual to have somebody who's had such significant vantage point at the federal senior executive level, the state government level, across the globe, in academia, in the business school, and in, in incubators in the business school, so and with a startup and small business. So you really have every vantage point we can hope for when you're thinking about what regulation should look like in the financial space. I know that you spoke on several topics at this conference and that you often talk about AI and in particular spoke about generative AI and finance and what regulation should look like. Can you give us a brief overview of what you think the uh, implications of AI are on the financial sector and, and how does generative AI 
impact what we have currently on the books. And if you wouldn't mind also adding, what do you think it would look like if we responsibly deploy generative AI in the financial sector? You mentioned a few examples earlier of what that could look like and some of the risks, what those could look like. You also mentioned there's a lot of opportunities. So I'd love to hear if, if you had thoughts on what would responsible AI governance of generative AI in the financial space look like? Well, thank you. Really my honor to be here and really glad to be able to talk the work that we do at Wharton. I just want to touch briefly on what you said and what Philip said about the accelerator and incubation. I do think that it's a really important part of what we're doing with emerging technologies and artificial intelligence and all. I'll mention, I do lead our corporate accelerator on financial technology at Wharton and AI is a primary focus for us this year. And it gives us the opportunity to learn about companies that are in the space trying to find smart solutions for some of the problems that we've discussed in this webcast. I think one of the brilliant things that Philip has done convening folks in Geneva and going forward with our expert consortium on AI is bringing in computer science experts. So a lot of times in the regulatory world, we're talking with all attorneys and trying to figure out what the right solution is from a regulatory perspective. But I actually believe that sometimes we can find a technological solution to some of the challenges that we face with these emerging technologies. And I think I'm a bit of an optimist on things like that, including on issues like privacy, for example. So that's not a new issue to us in financial regulation. And sometimes we can look to the engineering folks to try to create a technology solution that can help us address our privacy concerns and balance the policy considerations that we think about. And one of the remarkable things about doing that when we are able to do it is that we've now then technologized our view on privacy and taken to a certain extent the volatility out of the decision making. So I know that's a really optimistic perspective on some of the policy issues that we talk about, but it's it's one of the things that we focus on in the work that I do. And you know what I would say about AI and finance is that it's exciting and it's early, and there are a lot of challenges around it as well. So I think we will see a lot more AI and generative AI in finance. In fact, right before we were in Geneva, I think BlackRock made an announcement about uh, their investment in AI and lauded it as a mega force that will drive investor returns going forward. And that's just one example. I think investing and trading, certainly generative AI will um, have a, a key role in that going forward. And there are a lot of smart people working on that. Um, one of the areas that is getting a lot of focus in finance and credit provisioning. So certainly not only in the US, but across the world, and this was discussed in Geneva as well, is giving access to credit to people who might not otherwise have it. And the question then is, how do we make credit decisions? How do we make lending decisions that are the most inclusive and involve the most people and provide the best possible opportunity for financial inclusion while also balancing our financial and risk management considerations? And AI can potentially be used to create models that have better default probability estimations, um, better estimations around loss severity, and that gives us better credit forecasting. And at the same time, AI is being touted as having the potential to do what's called expanding the credit box. 
box, meaning for folks who are not otherwise able to get access to loans or for small businesses, for example, AI can take into account different kinds of data, whether it's your rental bill or your utility bill, for example, that can be input into a model and better determine how a loan could be made and to what extent. So I think these are really interesting potential applications for the technology. Certainly AI is being used to service clients. Um, a lot of you know ethical and policy considerations around that, around how AI is being used to interact with clients and making sure that it's being done in a transparent way. And then I think across finance, really financial infrastructure, trading and portfolio management, which is my original background, um, there are a lot of opportunities. I'll just mention briefly that our team at Wharton is also working on some research and, and gathering information around how AI can be used to support the sustainable development goals from a finance perspective. So for things like anti-fraud, for example, um, how can that be used to support um, sustainable development goals related to promoting peaceful and inclusive societies, for example. Um, I mentioned credit provision, and that can potentially be an opportunity to reduce inequality. Um, so there are a lot of other potential applications, but it's very early in the sector, and I'm excited to work with the experts and you all and move forward on some of those challenges. Super, Sarah. Thank you very much for that. And you just mentioned the AI project to promote sustainable development goals. I don't know if there's anything else in more detail that you want to tell us about that. Sure. So this is very early stage. And in fact, we um, will be launching a series of webcasts through AI for Good at the ITU at the United Nations focused on AI and finance. And, you know, I, I have to give credit to others on this. It's really others doing the work here and our team is doing the research on what has been done. But the idea is really to bring a finance lens to what's being done around AI for good and the sustainable development goals. So anti-fraud is one example of that because generative AI can be used to detect fraud in real time. And so it can facilitate a more instant means of reacting to fraudulent activity and improve the success of handling fraud over time. And this is really important for institutions that are dealing with unstructured data um, for treating consumers fairly and well and reacting to their needs. And then for the exponential growth of real-time transactions that we're seeing in this space. Certainly that's, you know, just one example. And again, I have to mention it's others are doing the work substantively to implement that, my team is really researching what is being done and then trying to highlight that and engage with it. Credit scoring, you know, as I mentioned, is another key potential application. And there will continue to be focus on that because it's it's really a balance in many ways. You know, certainly there are strong concerns around fairness and credit provisioning as well. And um, we talked about model transparency earlier. So we want to make sure that we have models that are improving credit provisioning in a way that works for the financial sector and policy and not inadvertently excluding people who need access to credit. And that's, that's a difficult balance, but I think it'll be interesting to move forward on that and work with experts to try to sort it out. We're so fortunate that you have a mind towards both of those important end goals. One, how do we use generative AI 
for some of these benefits while Philip is making sure that we're not overextending the environmental impacts, um, but also being mindful of who is being left behind. Also uh, making sure that as we do use it and deploy it, that we're mindful uh, of who may not be seen unless we're intentional and, and inclusive. So thank you for sharing the important work you're doing there. So I know there were many fantastic speakers and conversations at the AI for Good conference. Can you share with us each of you, please, what were your top takeaways from some of the other talks that you heard or participated in? Well, this is very high level. I would say the big takeaway for me of the AI for Good Summit is the importance of international coordination. And, you know, my opening remarks at our generative AI workshops touched on this, but I do think we have the opportunity right now to coordinate and cooperate internationally. And that was really a theme of the summit. So I know it's very high level, but the fact that the Secretary General of the United Nations was engaged, Doreen Bogdan Martin, the Secretary General of the ITU, and then there were heads of many, many other UN agencies and offices there as well. And I know that the UN is continuing to engage at the executive level on this issue. You know, coming from the financial sector, what I would share is that there are other issues in finance where we have not coordinated internationally. And they're not great examples of what can happen when we are not coordinated. We have some good examples and we have some less good examples, but for an issue as important as AI and generative AI and the ethical and fairness considerations, I think it would be great if people can come together and really work together. And that's part of what we're trying to do with this expert consortium. So I know that's very high level, but I, I just want to reiterate it because I think it's imperative. And I think it really goes to the work that you, Miriam and Kay are doing in this space as well. Thank you, Sarah. And before you jump in, Philip, if you wouldn't mind my just asking one follow-up, Sarah, I know Kay and I love sharing the details. You know, so much of unpacking AI for people is understanding the story, understanding where people are, understanding how it relates to other contexts. When you talk about the other examples of how we've done it right or wrong in the past, are there any that come to mind you could share? Well, I would share in financial regulation, I think there are some great examples of international coordination where we have been able to move forward and work together on really mission critical issues. I think that FATFA and anti-money laundering is an example of how there can be coordination and collaboration around an issue that's really important in the financial sector. So anti-money laundering, anti-terrorism, for example, absolutely mission critical. And we have some great regulators and experts who are coordinated on that issue. I would say that on issues around digital assets, I think that's the one that really stands out where there is not yet great coordination, but things are moving very quickly. So, you know, countries are moving forward with different types of regulation at the national level, whether it's for digital assets or central bank digital currency or use of stable coins in the banking sector. And there are great international bodies like the IMF or the Bank for International Settlements that are working to develop standards and interoperability. But unfortunately, it's not coordinated yet, I think, in the way that would make the most sense. And for us in finance, one of the key things is infrastructure and the, the risk of the system and the way the system works together. So if we have a whole host of entities that are not coordinated at the regulatory level, it can potentially exclude 
countries that should be included um, from a financial inclusion, financial transaction perspective. And from a systemic risk perspective, I think it could be a great risk as well. So again, I know it's aspirational, but generative AI is so important and moving so quickly. And we have so many smart people around the world working on it. And we have this opportunity now, I think, to work together. And I think that if people weigh in and engage on that, I think it would be positive. Yeah, I can only share this enthusiasm about international collaboration. And this was also something that was very palpable, both at our own workshop and at the larger summit later on. There's even talk of, and I offered a few thoughts on this also at other occasions about um, even an international convention surrounding AI where the UN could say uh, play a certain role where we could, for example, have, I would say, suggest three layers whereby the first one would be more information gathering, information sharing. The second one would be bringing in and providing a hub for interchange, for exchange of opinions, for coordination between different regulators. Because, of course, we have now the German regulators, for example, that have sent out a four-page letter, each of them, uh, the Data Protection Authorities, to OpenAI, which might as well, you know, end the way OpenAI is actually working in Germany and effectively in the EU if uh, the forthcoming answers are not uh, positive and GDPR compliant, let's say. And we've had the adventure already with Italy asking similar questions. So we need collaboration there, of course. And it's a similar issue in all countries that have GDPR-like rules on data protection. And the third level would be really looking for some kind of minimum standards, I would suggest, for AI to make sure that we don't have a race to the bottom or, you know, a regulatory arbitrage whereby the EU is now racing to adopt uh, the AI Act. But, uh, you know, understandably, companies and people developing this will choose the place where they get the best support. But even there, uh, even if it's not covered by the EU AI Act, we should ensure that some minimum guardrails are in place concerning, you know, non-discrimination, um, some certain aspects of privacy and transparency. For example. So those are some of the conversations that were really important and interesting. Other than that, I can say that at our own workshop, we, we have a lot of videos that we will share in the next few days. So you can actually re-watch all of the um, talks. There was a fantastic conversation and intervention by one particular person. I can't remember, Miriam, Miriam, can't remember her last name. <laughs> so she was kind enough to offer her thoughts on inclusivity and AI bias. So thanks so much again for that, Miriam. That was just splendid. And we also had many more discussions with, you know, people from Oxford who weighed in on non-discrimination, Senator Wachter and Brent Middlestad. We had Dean Krishnan from Carnegie Mellon talking about workforce augmentation. Again, Jeremiah's Adams Pressel um, also weighing in from Modeling College Oxford on worker protection. We had the leading people in copyright patents and also from the industry. And from policymaking, Kai Tsena, who is very important in the European uh, policy space of the European Parliament. So it was great to see how everybody put their thoughts together. We had Sue Hendrickson, the former executive director of the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard, um, offering uh, her thoughts on the bit patchworky way in which uh, U.S. has different initiatives surrounding AI, but really important ones as well, both at the local and at the national level. And so it was all one big flurry legium of really most amazing thoughts. And we're very much looking forward to continuing those conversations, both via our own consortium and in other spaces. Thank you. Thank you very much for giving us not only 
the overview and some in-depth of what you were talking about, but also telling us that we can find those conversations and watch them or re-watch them, depending on whether we were lucky enough to be there. So, Philip, one area that you've spoken about in relation to LLMs is the issue of content moderation, and you raised it again at the early part of this podcast. So specifically, you discussed this in your paper that we mentioned before, regulating chat GPT and other large generative models. I wondered if you could take the opportunity and focus on this issue and ask how you see generative AI changing the debate around content moderation. Why do you believe we as a society should engage in generative AI content moderation? And what tools can be used to address the issue? Yeah, thanks. Uh, there has been so much talk about, you know, existential risk lately in open letters uh, by many different parties that I personally have not signed. And I think we have to be sure that we focus on the right points. And obviously, there are real risks concerning AI. And one of the real risks and really crucial risks that I see is really risk to not necessarily our physical safety because terminators around the corner, but rather because our institutions, democratic institutions and democratic discourses are under threat and attack. And, you know, there is just a very simple possibility, and that has been shown in many experiments, and it's already already happening, of mass-generated, automated um, production of fake news and hate speech uh, via generative AI. And content moderation basically is the idea of limiting the kind of output that an AI can have. Now, this is, of course, a highly controversial issue because, you know, reasonable people will disagree about what constitutes a proper limit to what can and should be the output of an AI system. And so we have to be cautious there, of course, in order not to block, uh, you know, speech that is legitimate. But at the same time, coming from Germany, you know, where we have very robust regimes and laws on content moderation, given our history, of course, in the 20th century um, of Germany as a country, I can say that I'm quite convinced that actually Germany has at the moment really an edge in this because we have the laws in place to prevent some of the worst utterances from being said and replicated at scale in public. And I think this is something that we need to be aware of and that we should extend to generative AI systems if we don't want to be in for very unpleasant surprises in the next election cycles, um, both in the US and the global level. And what can be done? Well, again, there, there, are, there are issues and solutions on the technical and on the legal level. So already, you know, responsible companies such as OpenAI are working hardcore on rules and, and on internal systems for content moderation, making sure, and we're not only talking about, you know, hate speech, we're also talking about, you know, assisted suicide. We're talking about persons really with mental health issues that become trapped in these systems and conversations and might harm themselves as has been reported by, you know, a man committing, unfortunately, suicide when engaging over weeks uh, with an unmoderated uh, generative AI system in Belgium. So there are all these things that are being done on the technical level with what's often called reinforcement learning with human feedback. And um, we should also not forget about the kind of work that this implies. And of course, the ghost workers that are behind this, so they have to sift through all of this 
well, uh, difficult content and toxic content to make sure that this does not reach our societies at scale. But what I think is even more important, perhaps, is to have the right framework in place from a regulatory perspective, or have the two come together. And how could that look like? In the EU, there is a new law that's called the Digital Services Act. And that act, for example, is now being enforced against companies who have, uh, who have basically fired their whole content moderation teams, such as Twitter and is giving them quite an, quite uh, some headache at the moment because they're obliged to have a content moderation system and notice an action mechanism in place that we all know from copyright law you know you see something you flag it and then it's being reviewed and it might be taken down if it's illegal and what's illegal and legal will be you know will be decided by basically the country in which this content is visible but um, that system does not work very well for generative AI because it only applies to the intermediaries. It only applies to Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. But once it's out there, you know, we all know that you can't put it back into Pandora's box. So once that box has been opened, you know, there's no way we can actually track all of this. And so my idea is to say, look, many responsible companies are already doing this. Let's oblige also those who are not so willing to actually uh, have a notice and action, action mechanism in place and grant opportunities to civil society, civil society actors such as NGOs, you know, that can register, for example, under the Digital Services Act with national governments and that can then flag content that needs to be reviewed in a prioritized manner. And again, this is not about shutting down certain voices. This is about making certain flags available to civil society, you know, from all spectrums of civil society, such that it can then be properly and neutrally reviewed, first of all, by the platforms, and then later on by the courts. And I think this is the way we have to handle this, because if we just open up all the reins, all the content that's going, going to be coming through the floodgates will not all the time be very pleasant. And so I think this is really an urgent task that we have to tackle, particularly as we already live in these divisive times and have these you know, not necessarily coherent societies on both sides of the Atlantic. I wanted to agree with what Philip said. And um, as he touched on on the end, he also discussed liability and going through the court system. And I think that certainly that is a key consideration that we discussed in Geneva as well, is liability and who's responsible for different aspects of generative AI down the road. And unfortunately, I think the financial sector is a good example of how liability can be a challenge from a policymaking perspective, because if these issues aren't sorted out from the policymaking regulatory perspective, you then find yourself in the courts later. And, you know, that may happen, it will happen, but it's also more expensive, less efficient, and can be a very long road. And in the interim, you know, folks will suffer and there will be a lack of clarity for businesses. And I think the other thing that Philip mentioned, um, I think is a really important point is just involving civil society, industry, others, you know, there are other good examples in financial regulation and computer science where we have standard setting or um, input from industry to help develop standards. And I think that's essential on generative AI because um, policymakers, regulators can't know all the answers. We really need to have the engagement and the buy-in of others to make the framework work to make a regulatory framework effective and strong. So I think that's a really important point.
Yeah, just a really quick follow-up on that, perhaps, because one of the things that is being discussed right now uh, transatlantically is a code of conduct, right? And uh, that is actually a mechanism to bring in industry knowledge. It's not always worth the paper that it's written on, as we all know, but there are many positive examples, I think, of codes of conduct, particularly when it's coupled, as it is in the European GDPR, with the possibility of having the code of conduct reviewed by supervisory authorities and then declared binding such that actually industry can come up with ideas decentralized knowledge is being tapped and then these rules can be for example in content moderation specific sectors say for newspapers um, they could have their specific rules about how to deal with toxic content and come up with a certain ideas certain rules and if that then gets reviewed and approved by the regulator then that can be taken forward and can be very fine-grained sectoral mechanisms in place that actually um, then help us going forward to go from, so let's say, the principled level down to how this is actually being implemented differentially in many different areas and walks of life. Well, I hate to cut this off because I think it is such an important conversation. And what's so wonderful about talking with you both is you both raise not only such interesting questions, but you offer answers as well on best practices and how we can move forward. So I hate to do it, but I'll ask you the final question we ask each of our guests. And that is, if we gave you a magic wand and you were able to do anything you wanted, but that one thing to achieve responsible artificial intelligence, what would that wish be? Well, that's such an important question, Miriam and Kay. And if I had a magic wand, that would be incredible. And we've talked about a lot of issues today, content moderation and liability and responsibility, transparency, privacy. I would say in the financial sector, you know, one key issue that we talked about earlier is fairness in credit provision and making sure that we are using technology to expand financial inclusion, to make business stronger in a, a smart and sustainable way, and to include more folks in credit decisions and in, in the financial sector. Right? That's really imperative. And if there's a way for us to wave a magic wand and make generative AI um, have the right solution for that, I think it would be fantastic. And in the meantime, we'll be putting our minds together with all the folks that we talked about today and both of you. And I'm, I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to do that. There isn't so much to add on my end. Of course, if you have that one wish free, you would first ask for a magic wand with a thousand wishes free. But then once you've got that covered, um, I think the most important one out of these 1000 wishes that I would then have is to make, develop and implement AI that's as inclusive as possible and to make sure that it really benefits all, particularly those that are underserved or marginalized that suffer from disabilities for whom AI, if done well and with the right guardrails, offers tremendous potential. What a great place to end with optimism after all of the things that we've talked about. I think we all can be optimistic. I think we all share this feeling that if we take this important moment and navigate appropriately, we can achieve that goal. So let's all hope that we can make good on Philip's wish and the 999 others that we have coming. Thank you both so much for joining us today. This was a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Well, Kay, as we expected, I think there was so much to take away from the conversation with Sarah and Philip. There's so much in their independent work that they're doing, as well as the really interesting, important work that they mentioned in their AI for Good conference, their global summit. What were some of the key takeaways for you? 
Yeah, I think there was so much there and it's hard to choose just a few takeaways, but I'm going to try. I think the things that Sarah said about, you know, how she can see parallels with financial regulation and AI regulation. And one of the things that I've been thinking about quite a lot is liability and who's responsible. And as she said, you know, we've seen this in the financial sector that it takes a long time and people get hurt if you have to go through the court system. And so we need better and different ways of thinking about regulation and we can learn from, from financial services. So I was interested in that. I also thought that the way that Philip talked about sustainability and AI was really important because he made a few points very succinctly and he went oh <laughs> and so I would definitely recommend that anybody who missed those few points rewinds and listens to them things like you know the amount of water that a conversation with chat GPT takes and the need for greater transparency of the carbon footprint of algorithms and perhaps consumption caps in certain algorithms. So as you said, a number of things that were not just ideas, but, but really ideas that might become practical options. And I think the other thing was the three levels of maybe an international convention and avoiding, as we've often talked about, the race to the bottom by setting some minimum standards. What about you? The points that you mentioned are really resonated with me as well. I am grateful that he not only talked about the sustainability concerns, but offered some thoughtful solutions. You can tell with both Sarah and Philip, they are so familiar with what has and hasn't worked on the international arena and are able to offer solutions based on those experiences. For instance, when Sarah mentioned international collaborations that have gone well and likened this to anti-laundering, anti-terrorism efforts, where they are, as she called it, mission critical. We are with AI, in particular with generative AI, in a mission critical phase. And I really take their point about uh, as much as there's needed for action, we first need to have international dialogues. We first need to have an opportunity for these discussions to continue across borders as AI works. So we need to as well. And think about what institutions are the right places and what fora are the right places to help move forward these solutions. For instance, as Philip mentioned, as democratic institutions are at risk, democratic institutions need an opportunity to work together to have a hub to identify some critical concerns, have crowdsourcing, not only to share information, but then to help prioritize where are the areas where we need uh, the social media companies, that, for instance, in content moderations, content moderation, or other areas to be thinking about this on a global scale with an opportunity for broader participation, because that's where we need to have it, given that there are so many users, there's going to be so many harms. Both we need the input at scale of the multiple users, but we also need to benefit from the insights of the diverse perspectives, which you can only do when you find opportunities for, for broad coordination and involving more public engagement. So I, I really appreciated their suggestions on, on those fronts. 
as well as the way that they are moving forward and, and convening more conversations so that we can continue to learn and participate in this conversation. So I applaud them for the work that they're doing independently and with the summit, and we'll look forward to sharing those talks with our listeners and following their work going forward. Yeah, absolutely. One statistic that I heard, and I'm not sure I'd heard before in Recontre Economique, was that in 2024, by GDP, 75% of the world's population will vote, which rather makes the content moderation issue really important that we, that we do something as soon as possible. All right. Well, with that, I think we couldn't say it better or land in a more important place. So thank you, Kate, for another great discussion. Thank you, Miriam. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 